1: Fatima El-Kabdi is living a dissonant life. On one hand, the wife and mother of two is doing mundane things, like taking her kids to school and renovating a home. On the other hand, the Palestinian American is hearing and seeing images of the death and destruction brought on by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza, and it takes a toll. She struggles to put her phone down and smile at her children, and her tense mood and anguish are often overwhelming. The war became all too real when, in late October, more than a dozen of her family members were killed in a single airstrike in Gaza City.
0: So my grandfather has had two sisters, and their children were killed. So um, each of his sisters has lost, uh, basically my mom's cousins from two different aunts were killed, along with their descendants. So it was like my mom's cousin, her daughters, two of them, uh, and then all the in-laws of that family which includes three girls and so it was like 13 children and um a bunch of adults but it was it was three generations in one strike on october 25th um in gaza city and they were seeking refuge from their actual home in a nearby um home in errimal so um and then it took two or three days to excavate them from under the rubble because people were working with their hands and of course Um, The damage has been so global and so widespread that people weren't just, you know, at leisure to get them out. Fatima didn't find out about her family's
1: killing immediately. Extended blackouts have made communication hard. And she only learned of the news when her mom's cousin posted it on Facebook.
0: I've always been shaken by violence against Palestinians um, because normally, even before October seventh, it flies under the radar. It's just kind of like normal. It's normal for Palestinian bodies to be violated. It's normal for people in the West Bank to be killed without, you know, just extrajudicial killings. It's normal. This is the normal for Palestinians. Um, So I think those kinds of that has reverberations for us as Palestinians kind of living. And I think it engenders a sort of disenchantment with the world a little bit, because uh, it's, it's as if, Our lives don't matter, you know. Um, So this one was striking because it was personal to know that you know you could lose three generations, and it's not the headline in every major newspaper. That that felt like oh, it really. um, We've been talking about genocide, I think, in relation to Gaza, and that really brought it home for me because it was like, in what other circumstance can you kill three generations of people, including children, and it not even make headlines? It's not even a footnote because there are so many civilian casualties, so many. Um, they're buried in a mass grave. You know, they they don't have a headstone. It's um, a piece of cardboard with their names in a list.
1: Those names are among almost 20,000 Palestinians killed The majority are women and children. The most recent war has displaced nearly 2 million people. But dispossession is not new in Gaza. It's a deeply rooted part of Fatima's family history. Refugees, including her great-grandfather, fled to Gaza when they were expelled from nearby villages in 1948. And today, those refugees and their descendants
0: make up about 80% of Gaza's population. My... Mom is Palestinian. Her parents were both originally from Gaza, but her her mom's family, my great grandfather, his name was Said Zainaddin. He was arguably like Palestine's um, most famous lawyer at the time. He uh, was educated in various cities, and then he settled in Jaffa, where he built a villa and owned very like a lot of land. And he was the minister of endowments um, in the Ottoman in Ottoman Palestine, and. Um, in 1948, he and everyone else, all the other um, Palestinian occupants of Jaffa, were forced to flee. Um, and so he fled south, and he uh, stayed at a farm with his family um, in Gaza, and then he ended up renting uh, a home in Gaza City. And that's where he continued working as a lawyer until he was assassinated um, in 1959.
1: Fatima knew about this history growing up her family's elders told the story of expulsion, or nekba, often. Nekbah means catastrophe in Arabic and refers to the mass displacement of Palestinians during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War.
0: For a lot of Palestinians, there's a so the nekba of 1948. There's a sort of stark before and after. Um, my family comes from, there were kind of urbanites and... Um, My great-grandfather was really wealthy, so, you know, they had a driver. They had a Buick at a time when nobody had cars. Mm -hmm. Um, They had lands and servants, and they were very well-to-do. They used to hold salons um, where they would share poetry. He was a writer of poetry. He has a D-1 or a collection of poetry. And he used to host huge parties where there would be – All his colleagues would be there, Christian, Jewish, agnostic, whatever, the whole spectrum. But that was kind of what Ottoman Palestine was like. um, And even under the mandate, of course, that changed dramatically after 1948 um, with, you know, Palestinian dispossession. But I feel like every Palestinian I know has a story of dispossession, of murder, of terror, of fleeing. And I think I heard it from my grandparents um, and it instilled in them a fear. So my grandfather in Texas, I remember him telling us growing up, do not talk about this. They will kill you. That was his his life lesson was just fly under the radar, just try to survive because um, like the Zionist movement will kill you um, because your existence kind of flies in the face of uh, the Zionist um, mythology that this was a land for, a pe- you know, for a people with, a land without a people for a people without a land. Um, Our existence kind of negates that.
1: Fatima moved to St. Louis three years ago to pursue a master's degree in creative writing at Washington University. It was here that she began researching and writing a novel about her great-grandfather's life.
0: Saritin Dean, uh, my great-grandfather, I felt like his story encapsulated the story of Palestine. Um, First, it kind of paints a portrait of Jaffa as it was, kind of like the Eden before the <laughs> the fall kind of thing. Um, so he lived in a place that was pretty cosmopolitan. It was a city called, it was called the City of Strangers because it kind of welcomed strangers and brought together people. Um, Jaffa. And then it was also famous for its oranges. It had periodicals. So you had, you know, newspapers, you had a lot of commerce going through there, It had a train station, it had a movie theater. I mean, these are things that were, you know, it had all the innovations of its time. Um, And so I think in painting, at least casting this as the backdrop for um, Life Before the Nakba, I think it captures maybe some of the collective nostalgia that we have for this place where, you know, people were living together, um, not always peacefully, but, you know, before the Zionist movement, pretty, pretty well, actually. Um, The communities were mixing and um, all kind of, uh, I mean, even at that time, Jewish communities could, uh, had their own, under Ottoman law, they had like their own courts and their own schools, and they were allowed certain privileges. Um, So capturing that, I think, in the story felt really important. And then because he also experienced specifically the Nakba, he and his family, um, and he did, my family was fortunate because he was well to do. So even though he fell, he didn't fall as hard as a lot of other people did. I mean, a lot of Palestine was um, uh, consisted of farmers, the farming class, and uh, their wealth was in the land and in the livestock. And, and so to suddenly be divorced, forcibly divorced from their land meant an end to all their livelihood. Um, And it's actually part of the reason why Palestinians today are extremely educated, because they've learned that was a lesson my grandfather taught me because he had just an eighth grade education. And he always told us like, get those higher degrees. He made sure all of his kids had, he paid for their college educations and four of them got master's degrees because he was so keen on that because it was something transferable. You could pick it up and go, you know, the next time, you know, you were expelled, you could pick it up and go. Um, And so you'll see that among the casualties in Gaza today, a lot are extremely educated.
1: With the cosmopolitan city of Jaffa as the backdrop, Fatima al-Kabti says her forthcoming book is emblematic of the Palestinian experience. And the story of her great-grandfather, Saeed Zayn al-Din, helps
0: tell it. He continued to fight for Palestine as a country, as a lawyer, within the capacity. He he believed in the law. And it was a time of lawlessness, just as you see now. I mean, people are camping out, right? They've been forced south. There's nothing for them. Um, So imagine almost a similar backdrop happening 75 years ago. (laughs) We're seeing history kind of repeat itself, um, which feels surreal. But at the time, um, things became lawless. And um, there was a gang that had you know, uh, an armed gang that took over a widow and an orphan's home. And they just claimed it as their own. And these are Palestinians in Gaza. Um, And so the the widow and her orphans um, wanted to take that gang to court. And uh, the gang sent death threats to every lawyer who was you know, was considering taking the case. And so each of them said, No, I can't, I can't. And ultimately, it landed in um, on Said's desk. And Said was a lawyer who'd never lost a case. And he, he took the case. His son was already grown his son, Omar. And he worked in the same law firm. And he didn't tell him because he knew <laughs> he would, uh, you know, dissuade him or try to. And so he on the day of the you know, on the hearing, he um, he did win the case. And as he was walking home, he was dressed that day in a, a white suit and was carrying his parasol, which was just customary for him. Um, and at the time, actually, my grandma and her husband, my grandfather and my aunt and uncle, they were little. They were visiting from Saudi Arabia where they were refugees. They were visiting their family in Gaza. And so they were in the house. And Said is walking home to his daughter, to his wife. And um, the electricity in their whole neighborhood was cut off. And um, all they heard from inside the house were gunshots. And they thought it was, oh, resistance fighters, you know, skirmishes with uh, the Israeli army. Uh, and the next thing they know, there's moaning outside of their door. And uh, one of his sons recognized his father's voice and ran out, opened the door, and um, Saeed Nadine fell to the ground. Um, and he died right there, kind of in the, uh, in the front yard. Um, My aunt remembers it. She was like four or five at the time. And uh, my uncle was a baby. Um, One of my mom's cousins, who I saw this summer, also was there. He was kind of like they lived in the adjacent house. So they all were witness to his murder.
1: The story of Fatima's great-grandfather is worth sharing, she says, because in addition to preserving her family's history, it also offers a look into what the future could be.
0: I've always thought the story was so metonymous for the Palestinian experience because um, I think Zionist occupation, the Zionist occupation of Palestine has the same logic as that of this Palestinian gang. We can and so we will. We took it by force. It's ours now. Who cares about the laws? Um, And I think that Said stood for something to the end. And then to me too, there's something very powerful about him insisting on walking home. He was shot and he still walked home. Um, And for Palestinians who are denied their internationally recognized right of return, that march home is, we hold that key in our hearts, the key to our homes. You are also making the decision
1: to write about your great-grandfather in fiction form. Mm -hmm.
0: Why is that the case? That's a great question. So I think um, there's been a lot of gaslighting of the Palestinian experience and i think that's part of it is you know where's the proof where is the proof you know one of the things i had hoped to do um and that now seems utterly um impossible is to have gone into the gaza archives um because said zainedine was so big that he um he his firm was still like there are recent obituaries of lawyers who said they studied under said zainedine and who had you know it was that kind of a a legacy um but just recently, like these last these last few weeks, Israel has actually bombed the archives in Gaza. Um, there's a complete erasure of our experience. And it's deliberate. And what we end up being like having um is what's curated, what Israel chooses to show us, of our own history, of our own past. And we can see that revising as it's happening today, right? Because we get, you know, civilians uh, are, are arrested, extrajudicially killed, and then they're tarnished, their reputations are tarnished post-mortem, <laughs> you know. Um, so I can only imagine, Im- extrapolate that to a broader history or to other issues. It's, it's, um, my dad's side is actually Libyan. And so there's a, another history of colonialism there. But it's kind of insane to trust the colonizer to tell the story. Of the colonized, and to do it well, and in a way that, um, forget flatters, that is fair.
1: Whose hands do you want this book to be in? Um, and what would you like it to, to move people to do or to think?
0: I hope it gives people a vision of what could be. I think a world that's more pluralistic, where everyone is treated with equal rights on the land that they love. There's no reason All of them can't live together with equal rights. That's what Palestinians want. The other thing I think that's super important that this novel tries to do is to humanize Palestinian men. Because I think even in the rhetoric today, there's a sort of like championing of women and children and they're the ones innocent. But all these men, all these men, these civilian men are innocent too. And they're kind and they're loving and they're funny. Like these are the men we know from Palestine. These are the men of my family. You know, so I think the the novel is actually it's it sounds heavy, but it's supposed to be kind of lighthearted and to show kind of life within the family sphere.
1: Over the past two months, how have you engaged with the St. Louis community around this war, um, whether that is as an individual or perhaps with the, the community that you have found here in St. Louis?
0: Uh, I've gone to protests. Um, There's been a lot of protests out here um, organized by various groups. um, Wash U hosted like an art fair, and for me it's been almost therapeutic to get back to art. And I've been reaching out to some of the local churches, hoping that there'd be some kind of solidarity, I think, um, between our communities. I've reached out to some of my Jewish friends here, but um, some of my Jewish friends who are anti-Zionist, one of whom was at Wash U was telling me, even though that's how she feels, she hasn't found kind of like a synagogue that um, makes her feel at home in those ideas. And so that's kind of been a struggle. And so when I reached out to her, actually, at the beginning of all of this, I was telling her, this feels like a really important time for our communities to kind of come together. Um, she just told me she didn't feel like she was the right person or, you know, I think it, it's hard, I think, um, but I've also been heartened. I think nowadays a lot of this has been happening through social media, the awareness. This has been the first time I think people have even attended to um, the violence in Gaza, and it is exceptional violence this time against um, innocent people, but this is like the fourth or fifth war that Gazans have experienced during my lifetime. Um, And This is the first time I feel like Americans have access maybe to some of the footage coming out from gods and journalists and things like that. So um, it's created a new kind of broader awareness that makes me feel a little bit less alone in my grief. Witnessing
1: mass destruction and death every few years, that's not something that's easy to get through. What are the ways that you and your family as well as those whom you know in Gaza are coping?
0: I think for a lot of people, and this isn't really my coping me- mechanism, but I think for a lot of Gazans, faith. Faith has been the thing that um, has kept them afloat, and it keeps them afloat. So my cousin, who I reach out to, and you know, we talked about that first batch of relatives who died, but a few days later there was a family of doctors, who are my mom's other cousin, um, Who were killed. And then a few days later, there was a youth, just one, you know, a kid. And then a few days later, one of the women who was killed, um, her son, who was now, you know, had lost his mother one month later, now this last week, um, was killed himself. So this has been just kind of like an ongoing thing. And I think the only way people living under this brutal occupation can cope is by believing this is actually not the end, that death is not the end. So for them, and this is maybe why I think Israel has a hard time winning on a almost spiritual level, because um, Palestinians, I think, have lost faith in uh, Arabism, in socialism, <laughs> in democracy coming to their aid. They really have lost faith, I think, in these kind of like human answers or, or calls for justice. Um, and in instead of that, I think they have turned to God. And so you see that, I think, over and over again in these videos where people are consoling each other and the verbiage, the language that they're using is all uh, children when they die are birds in paradise. And, um, you know, there are oft-repeated phrases for, I think, Muslims, but the the level of belief that they have in them is something else, you know, that they have won. Like the the ones who died have beat us to it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because I think also a lot of them. So my mom's aunt still lives in Gaza, and she's in Gaza City. So she hasn't gone south. She's paralyzed. She's not going to make a huge trek south, right? Right now, her daughter is with her. If they were to move her, and they have had to move her from school to school as shelters, they have to carry her with like a on a cloth. And they've dropped her once in that process. It's not easy. So for folks like that, I was asking my mom, well, why don't they go south? They're telling them to go south. And she said, you know, they feel that they will be killed. Like, what's the difference to be killed here or there or there? Because if you're not going to die here near your home, you're going to die there of starvation, die there of cold, die there of all. That's kind of their condition. And so for, I think, a lot of them, there's a sense of putting their trust in God and also trusting that in the afterlife there will be some kind of justice. Because Mm -hmm. uh, if you were to wait for justice In this world, I think it's been a huge disappointment.
1: Fatima El-Kabti is a St. Louis resident and Palestinian-American. She earned a master's degree in creative writing from Washington University this past May. Her forthcoming novel already has a title, The White Parasol. Her great-grandfather, a prominent Palestinian lawyer and poet, was carrying a white parasol on the day he was murdered, and the book tells the story of her family's history of dispossession. Israel has killed nearly 20,000 Palestinians since Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack. During that attack, Hamas killed 1,200 Israelis. More than 100 hostages remain in captivity. Last month, United Nations experts reaffirmed their initial concerns that Palestinians were at grave risk of genocide. UN human rights experts pointed to a quote, genocide in the making, unquote and Israel's overt intent to destroy Palestinian people under occupation. St. Louis on the Air is sharing multiple perspectives about the war. If you have a personal story to share, send us an email to talk at stlpr.org.
0: Today's segment was produced by Aula Kuziz
1: audio engineering, and podcast design by Aaron Doerr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio.
0: Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group.